it was a dream job. And I went in and just started teaching the way I learned. I didn't want to do it the way schools were doing it. Being able to think about education differently was a gift that I was given. The topic for today's podcast is reaching and teaching neurodivergent learners in STEM with Dr. Jody Asbell-Clark. Unpacking Education is brought to you by Avid.org. Avid believes no student should fall through the gap. To learn more about Avid, visit their website at avid.org. Welcome to Unpacking Education, the podcast where we explore current issues and best practices in education. I'm Rena Clark. I'm Paul Beckerman. And I'm Winston Benjamin. We are educators. And we're here to share insights and actionable strategies. Education is our passport to the future. Our quote for today is from our guest, Dr. Jody Asbel Clark, from her TEDx talk titled, We Know More Than We Can Tell. When talking about neurodivergent learners, she says, You don't have to be really good at tests to be a great problem solver. I believe that unleashing the potential of these diverse learners is the key to our future. All right, Paul Winston, what do we think? Um, for me, the thing that I'm hearing is really the teachers or the adults to really challenge the way they perceive historical intelligence to be. Because as it says, it's like they're still good problem solvers. So teachers are the ones who kind of limit what students are capable of. And I think once we get out the way of students, then they'll be able to reach their greatness. So a part of me is, is really pushing teachers to reconsider their historical um, concept of quality. Yeah, and I'm going to jump off that too, Winston, and, and just share my perspective that there are different ways to unlock the mind so that kids can thrive. You know, traditionally it's been tests, but there's so many other ways that we can engage kids. You know, I think of UDL. We've talked about UDL on this show many times, Universal Design for Learning. Different ways to give students options, either in how they're receiving information, how they're showing what they know, how they're engaging in that content. You know, if we can find different ways to engage our different kids, because they're all different, we can really unlock things and look at kids as having gifts, not deficits, if they're not good test takers. Mm -hmm. I always appreciate that strength-based lens. What is it that students can do? And let's uh, focus on looking at that to help us design our assessments, our instruction. But I'm excited to dig deeper uh, around this topic today. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. Asbel Clark, to the show today. So she is the senior leader, research scientist, and director of EDGE, an organization which she founded in 2009 to study how game-based learning can transform science education. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks. It's great to be here. And if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, your area of research, just to help them kind of understand where you're coming from today. Sure. Um, first of all, let me just say the EDGE is a, a group at an organization called Turk. And I did not, I was not a founder of Turk. Turk's been around for about 60 years doing, uh, it's a nonprofit focusing on innovation and equity in STEM education. And I've been fortunate enough to be there for 30 of those years. Um, do leading a team and teams of researchers in this area. So, and 
a bit of a, about my background. I I started out studying STEM. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't like Harvard bound or Yale bound or anything. I started at Keene State College, which was great little place to start. But I started from the STEM perspective. I studied computational math, which is what it was called back then. But I got the chance to co-op for IBM and ended up as a programmer on the first 25 missions of the space shuttle software. Oh, wow. And yeah. Now, now my dad joke mine is saying, that's out of this world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> say it really is rocket science. No, that um, was cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was a real, I was, you know, 20 years old running around with a pager. And if there was a, you know, something happened, they called us in and said, you know, why did this happen? It was very heady, very cool. I worked with a lot of people who were extremely smart, some of the best problem solvers in the world. Some of them a little quirky and, you know, hard to communicate with or, or just, just, to thought differently, never really noticed the difference. I just knew they were like really talented and I wanted to be able to learn what they knew. And then through a series of things, got married, had kids. Um, uh, well, went to graduate school to, for astrophysics because I wanted to be an astronaut, but very quickly realized just my lack of sort of self-discipline and constrained thinking was neither good for being an astronaut nor an astrophysics researcher. But uh, so <laughs> I became an educator because I was, I was just interested in too many things. I wanted to do too many things. So I ended up teaching at a lab school at the University of Illinois, University High School. Great little small school where my job was to take sort of 99% college bound kids, really creative thinkers, and do whatever I could that wasn't traditional curriculum to teach them physics and astronomy eventually. And uh, it was a dream job. And I had never taken an education course in my life, but I went in and just started teaching the way I learned, which was through experience. I brought them downstairs and said, okay, we're going to run races so that they learn velocity and instantaneous velocity and acceleration, all that stuff. Cause that's how I would think about it. So did that for a little while and then ended up at Turk through a series of coincidences and realized that being able to think about education differently was a gift that I was given. I, I was given enough experience to know I didn't want to do it the way schools were doing it. And now I was given a chance to get use taxpayer money through very generous funding from the National Science Foundation to figure out how we really should do it. And so when people ask me what I do, I, I basically learn how kids learn STEM. So through all that, through a series of things, we, we use game-based learning to really reach kids that often get marginalized. And in 2015, Turk brought back a game called Zumbinis that is a beloved popular game. I was not on the design team, so I can say it is the best learning game out there. <laughs> and we were lucky enough to get a, or fortunate enough to get a grant to study computational thinking, which we can talk about more, in the game Zumbinis. And we were able to demonstrate the game was great at, at showing kids computational thinking. But the side note was teachers kept on coming up to us saying, 
wow, it's the kids that never, you know, stood out in other aspects of class. They're becoming the rock stars. They are solving all the Zumbini's puzzles first and the other kids want to know how they're doing it. And now they're seen as the class leaders. And so we just kept on saying, there's something here, there's something here. Got us very interested in neurodivergent learners. And that's how we've ended up where we are now, where I am, what I'm our focus of interest. Um, I appreciate your experience. There's so many different ways that we define neurodivergent, how based on it, if you are older, younger generation, um, is there a way that you can help define what neurodivergent learners mean in the K through 12 classroom today as a way to ground our listeners? The way I define neurodiversity at the at the sort of fundamental level is just the natural variation within brains that we all all brains work differently. And in the same way, we have variations in size and hair and skill color and all these things, we have different brain functions. Um, so that natural variation and is, is what I mean by neurodiversity. When I talk about neurodivergent, it means a little differently because it usually means in some way at one end or another or one extreme of another of some of those dimensions. Well, let me back up and say why I don't define it as strictly ADHD or autism or um, dyslexia. While those would all be included, first of all, in our experience, many learners experience more than one of those. And those classifications are very limiting in a sort of pedagogical or research way. Um, And then secondly, there are so many factors that exhibit similar behaviors, and those are increasing in today's classrooms. Children who are under stress, anxiety, um, trauma, hunger, sleep, all those things, they all affect what we call executive function. And, um, And at the core of many of those other conditions we talked about before, also at the core of those are executive function. So we just think about how do we support people's executive functions and how do we reveal and nurture the cognitive assets that every student brings. And when we do that, we we can be inclusive of neurodiversity while also not excluding anybody from that intervention or that uh, practice. Does that make sense? That does. That does. Yeah, it's helpful, helpful helpful to get that. That kind of definition and to see it a little bit broader maybe than what some people might define it as or just assume it is. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the work that you're doing to support neurodivergent learners. Um, why have you kind of focused in on STEM as maybe the best way to support them or a way that you feel is effective? Well, it's funny. For me, I started in STEM and now I'm focusing in on neurodiversity. But, um, <laughs> because, but, but I will say the connections that are made. Well, it's interesting. STEM companies, um, SAP and Microsoft and um, Ernst Young, EY, they're now called, back in the early 2000s started um, neurodivergent hiring programs. Many of them started focusing specifically on autism and um, there was actually a, a, a company, is a company um, in Sweden, I believe, that uh, 
was was hiring specifically people with autism to do debug software because they knew that you know who wouldn't you want more than somebody who is detail oriented and wants to like compulsively dot every I and cross every T that's, and, and really sees patterns and sees inconsistencies and, and they really, they feel them there. It's a sensory experience for them. So, so they were hiring people with autism, but then they realized they needed to change like how they did their hiring programs because, you know, they weren't going to interview some of these people and get, and understand what they want. So, so they, they, change things. And then other companies began to see the advantage of this. And so by the time I started talking to um, directors of the neurodivergent hiring programs, they were, I was going in thinking, oh, they're going to tell me it's a philanthropic pursuit and somebody's, you know, CEO's nephew is, had ADHD and wanted it or something. And it wasn't that at all. They were they were saying, oh, no, it's a competitive advantage. We can't hire enough employees to you to for the talent that we need in these areas and what we're finding. And so that really surprised me and made me start researching uh, and ended up with a book that I think we're going to talk about, about the overlap between some of the assets that have been studied for neurodivergent learners, such as pattern recognition and creativity and systematic thinking and persistence um, and the habits of mind that are um, thought to be associated with STEM problem solving and, um, and how to really good problem solvers see patterns they think about things systematically. They are creative and have idea generation and, and, and innovation. And that's those are all what the research says some of these strengths are. That's the connections we see. Well, you alluded to a little bit kind of after your discussion that you wrote a book. So we are going to talk about that. And I'd love to hear more about your book. And you kind of shared why you chose to write about that. But if you want to dig into that a little bit more, but more importantly, as a teacher educator, if I were to come and read this book, what would you expect to be some big takeaways for your readers? So first of all, it comes out in mid-November, so it's great timing, and mm. it's called Reaching and Teaching Learners, uh, Reaching and Teaching Neurodivergent Learners in STEM. And uh, now about uh, 10 years ago, but for about eight years, I was co-teaching in a middle school, sort of in parallel to my research at Turk. I was just volunteering in a local school and ended up in the classroom of the most awesome teacher ever named Sadie Bradbury. And she and I wanted to do PBL, uh, project-based learning, excuse me. And I had never really, that wasn't an area of my research. It was always something that i knew I naturally did, but it wasn't part of our research. And it turns out, unbeknownst to us, Nova Scotia curriculum, the, the province where I live, was, was actually wanting to pilot this in schools. So we were getting a lot of background support and enthusiasm for doing this. 
So I spent eight years in this school with very high needs kids. Um, these kids had everything going on from what I talked about. The, there was autism, there was ADHD, there was dyslexia. There were all of those things together. There was trauma, there was anxiety, there was everything going on in the school. And, um, and so I just watched how Sadie built the relationships with the kids and developed agency, learner agency, sort of empowered these kids as learners and how she naturally differentiated the curriculum, made it a different experience. The same curriculum could be the different experience for every kid. And the same, the ways we are able to assess learning became differentiated. And it, after 25 years in the field of being doing this theoretically and watching it all unfold in the classroom, it just felt like such a gift. And I had so many stories to tell of kids and how it played out and what didn't work and lessons learned and bridges burned. And um, so it, and then I was granted a sabbatical at Turk to take four months and just go right. So, so that was no brainer. I got to do this. And, and I think the, the true gift was really seeing those kids for what they could do. And, um, and just realizing if we could assess them differently and give them different opportunities, there's so much there. And, and at some point it turned around and I thought, wait a second, I'm a citizen in this world with all these problems. And if these kids aren't tapped into, we don't have a chance. You know, these are the kids that are going to be at MIT if we get them there. And they're going to be the innovators and the, the solvers. So, and I want to do that. That became my mission. I appreciate the way you talk about education and its power right? Identifying what students are successful for, with. So one of the things that um, you kind of alluded to, but I would like to hope that you can expand on this a little bit more, is uh, the idea between the relationship between computational thinking and executive function, right? We know that if executive function skills are critical to ensure student success, right? But how does computational thinking help support the um, executive function and development, right? As you see um, from your pre- your students to help with. So first of all, I want to say I'm glad you used the word support as opposed to change or improve. I would love to think that our work changes and improves it, and we're just starting to ask that question, but that wasn't even our goal to start. It's to support it so that we can Im- improve and um, uh, nurture STEM problem solving. Mm. And, and this also takes me back a little bit to what I realized I didn't answer in the last question, which is um, what can teachers take away from this? So in our work, we're, we're building a model and it's, it is a team effort. <laughs> I have a team of 10 people behind this and um, we're building a model using UDL that you mentioned before, universal design and um, cognitive load theory, just which is like, don't don't overwhelm people with too much information at once. And, um, and also um, differentiation strategies and executive function supports, which I'll get into. And we built, we were, um, we were fortunate enough to get a 
a research grant from the U.S. Department of Education, um, a four-year grant to build a set of materials that for teachers and learners in grades three through eight, we really honed in, our research is really honing in on grades three through five. That was our sweet spot. But um, And we built a model that we were able to show um, not only helped kids learn computational thinking, but also dramatically the, the, the kids who benefited most were the kids who had scored lowest on executive function tasks that we gave them. And we did it by things like graphical organizers so that they could collect their information and help support their working memory and um, highlighting tools that help highlight the salient information that they, not telling them how to find it, but just highlighting it for them when, when they find it. And um, metacognition tools of having them explicitly express what they just learned, whether if they did, a, if they solved a puzzle or a game, how did you solve that puzzle in the game? And we do those graphically and verbally and textually, whatever the kid need. We have all those different ways. So we provide multiple modalities, multiple ways of representing information and multiple entry points for the teachers to use. So maybe let's say we're doing a coding activity, which we do a sum of, or something. maybe one person starts with a blank slate and the tools. One person starts with a set of code that's all made, but needs, has a problem and needs to be debugged. And somebody else might start with some of the tools all filled in and need to fill, need to be filled in. Those are all perfectly valid ways to attack a problem. And some people might have find their strengths one and some in the others. So providing those strategies um, is something, again, that would be provided through the books. A lot of those strategies are described in the book as well as other teaching um, and learning strategies. Um, and we're building on that. That was an early phase research project and we've applied to get the mid phase. And we hope to be able to learn how that we got those effects and be able to scale that up. And we're also found through that work that teachers really need professional development about the executive function and how it plays the connections. And because some teachers understand a lot about computational thinking and understand about problem decomposition and pattern recognition and abstraction and algorithm design and these things that we talk about with computational thinking, but they don't necessarily understand or, or other parts of STEM problem solving, but they don't necessarily understand about children's variation in executive function. Other educators may really understand about executive function, but they have never heard of computational thinking. So to make these connections that problem decomposition is just breaking things down into smaller parts because sometimes that will reduce the cognitive load or help, you know, um, help kids with compromised working memory. And abstracting ideas and seeing patterns is part of the generalized problem solving that may or may not come with cognitive flexibility, which is part of executive function. So seeing these connections is going to make a better STEM teacher and it's going to make a better support per teacher that can support EF. 
And, but that comes with a lot of PD. So we're trying, we're proposing right now, we have a proposal due next week to run PD um, around this with, through AVID, <laughs> with AVID as a big part, partner in that. That's awesome. So you talked about this connection of computational thinking and executive function as part of the, the work that you're doing through this grant. Was that the connection to um, the program called InFact? Exactly. In fact, is including neurodiversity in foundational and applied computational thinking. And, and we got that, as I said, it was um, from the U.S. Department of Ed. And we had partners, a bunch of university partners um, come and, and just put our heads together of what's the essence of computational thinking and where are those assets of neurodivergent learners and how can we put those together and how can we support executive function in that. And those are open access materials that are available. I, they are going to be available through AVID's OER resource. Um, they're currently available on Turk's. TERC is Turk and on our website through if through the Impact project. So if a teacher is interested in in checking out these materials, they can they can go to Turk, they can go to Avid Open Access. What will they find there and and how can they like leverage those those yeah. resources? So Ostensibly, they're designed for grades three through eight. I will say our research showed the sweet spot is really three through five. Um, the, the, we need to do some more work on them to get the kind of applications that would really engage middle school learners. But what they're, the essence of the materials is to teach those foundational thinking structures, problem decomposition, pattern recognition, abstraction, and algorithm design that are what we call computational thinking. And it's a, it's a mode of problem solving. It's not just coding. It's not just robotics. It's not just games and puzzles, although we do all those, but it's a mode of problem solving and we apply it to daily life problems, getting up and getting, you know, what's the routine you use when you get up in the morning and get out the door? How do you structure that? How are there repeat loops in there? Is there conditional logic in there? And do you use functions and variables? We introduce it all within games, what we call get up and go activities, where you're walking through mazes and directing people through mazes with commands, and but all in the essence of these, these logical problem-solving talents. Awesome. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, so our listeners have heard a lot today about the mentioning of executive function and computational thinking. But let's go back to just three strategies that might help teachers that are trying to nurture and develop EF or executive function for students in a classroom. What would you recommend? So the first one's a huge one, which is differentiation. And that takes really under knowing your learners and knowing what is going to interest them and engage them and activate them. But without that, you can't do anything. That's a strong statement. But it's, it, for me, it is a ground zero. And then um, understanding what parts of executive function may be keeping your learners from, um, each of your learners from expressing what they really know. And so that may be working memory where they're, they just can't mm. retain it. 
long enough to be able to act on it. It may be cognitive flexibility where they see a system of rules and it's just really hard for them to assimilate new information into that. It may be attention where they're just very distracted by other things. Um, and it may be metacognition where they can put get the pieces, but they're not sure how to put the pieces together into the story of their learning and where they are. And it may be all of those or some of those. So those are just some of the elements that one can uh, scaffold or support to be able to then get to the deeper understandings and their deeper passions and interests. In my interviews for the book, I, I talked to scientists and professionals who had made their way through their own neurodiversity, and almost all of them said the, they love their brain the way it works. They wouldn't change anything except for how other people saw them, and that mm. stigma. Mm. That's so, a t-shirt. That's We have t-shirt ooh. moments, things that are just golden. There's one right there. So how the learner sees themselves, how the learner sees the learning experience, that's got to click, and then everything else can happen within that. Mm -hmm. mm. That's great. Mm. I appreciate that, um, that point because from those three tips, we're going to ask everyone, what's in your toolkit? Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. What's in the toolkit? What, what is in the toolkit? Uh, what's in the toolkit? Check it out. So what's in your toolkit? What's something that you're walking away that you're like, ooh, I'm going to grab that if I need to use that in a moment? What you walking away with? Paul, Rena? I think this goes back to something I said at the beginning, but this is all around relationships, but we really need to see the strengths. What is it that students can do, are capable of, and then build off of that. And then also thinking about how that might work within PBL or project-based learning seems like it is a way that we could really apply those strengths in different ways, have different modes of learning and assessment that aren't just, as we said earlier, tests. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and Jody mentioned PBL. She also mentioned UDL, Universal Design for Learning. So I'll drop that one back in the toolkit because... Giving kids different ways to, you know, engage in content, to represent what they know, to take action and express things, that is part of that differentiation equation, and that can go a long way. Cast.org has great resources out there if you're looking to get started in UDL. Um, we have a podcast with Katie Novak where she talks about UDL and blended learning. You check that out. Um, there's lots of resources on UDL, but I'd encourage our listeners to check into that. Mm-hmm. And I'll throw something in. Again, Jody, you mentioned this. Avid Open Access, there's tons of materials that's going to be supporting Jody's work and all this work on um, how to engage neurodivergent students in STEM learning. So please check that out. Jody, I'm going to Miss Jody, I apologize. My mother would kill me if I didn't say Miss Jody. Miss oh, Jody. No. Be <laughs> <laughs> that is what a lot of the kids call me. <laughs> yeah. Miss Jody, do you want to throw something in our toolkit? Well, um, in my book, I have three chapters that are called strategies. One of them is computational thinking. We've talked about that. One's project-based learning. We've talked about that. The third we haven't talked as much about is game-based learning. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm out there to make more gamers. There's, there's lots of other ways. But there are a lot of kids who are in games who are 
identify strongly with games and who have a lot of confidence and self-efficacy in games. And so if we can extract the learning and that they're doing in games, um, which is there is a lot of implicit problem solving in those games. And if that can be used to bridge to real life skills, I think that's another way of reaching learners who, who sometimes are left behind. Mm. And let's not leave our toolkit without reminding our listeners of your book coming out, Jody. Tell me if I get this wrong, but Reaching and Teaching Neurodivergent Learners in STEM, correct? Yes. Uh, the subtitle is Embracing Uniquely Talented Problem Solvers. And it comes out on November 14th, Rutledge, Taylor & Francis. And it's already, I saw, I got a link. You can pre-order it on Amazon. <laughs> All right. So check it out on Amazon. All right. Well, it's time to jump into our one thing. It's time for that one thing. All right, Rena, what's your one thing today? I love all of this, and, and I appreciate us diving into this topic. I'm hoping we'll talk more about it in future episodes. But once again, it goes back to know your students, because you can't really do a great job differentiating, or as we talked about, scaffolding when you don't know your students. So know your students, and then go from there. Very good. Winston? I think I'm going to jump with that, um, knowing your students, but also Jody mentioned that get PDs on computational thinking or executive function. If you don't know what e the opposite or either one are, because I'm really good at supporting students in executive function, but I'm not really that good in computational thinking. So it is important for me to get the PD to support my students. So if you're out there and you know your skills, Go get some support on the other side so you can be the bridge that allows students to walk across so they can learn more. Ooh, nice metaphor, Winston. Saying, yo, saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just, I've been dwelling on the fact, you know, that neurodivergency is an asset. These kids with autism that these, these big tech companies are seeking out because they have these unique skills that can really be assets to an organization. It's not well, we're just going to be nice to this group of people. You know, they may be struggling in some situations. No, we want them. They are really good and they're the best that we can get. So I love that. And I love that you said our problems of the future are not going to be solved unless we bring these folks into the equation. So uh, really cool and authentic affirmation of these, these folks and the skills that they have. Jody, you get to jump in our one thing too. What would you like to leave our listeners with? A kind of a final thought. Oh, I think just, I hope um, maybe somebody that you meet, you might look a little differently at, at after these conversations and just, you know, it might be someone you live with. It might even be yourself. <laughs> um, and I, if I, I, I just, I think we all need a little bit of that. And I hope that I could have sprinkled a little bit of that into this conversation. Mm. 
Very good. Well, I think you have, and I, I know I appreciate you being here today. So thanks again, Jody, just for sharing some of your research, your knowledge, and for everyone listening, again, you can get Jody's book, sounds like on Amazon, Reaching and Teaching No Diversity. And I'm sure many other places on that. <laughs> 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 we're, we're not getting kickbacks or no, anything. No, <laughs> It's just you just click that button and it's at your door the next day. It's lovely. But <laughs> once again, we do appreciate you being here. Well, I really enjoyed it and I appreciate your interest and I look forward to working more together. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Education. We invite you to visit us at avidopenaccess.org where you can discover resources to support student agency, equity, and academic tenacity to create a classroom for future ready learners. We'll be back here next Wednesday for a fresh episode of Unpacking Education. And remember, go forth and be awesome. Thank you for all you do. You make a difference.